Hi, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church. I had the privilege of traveling to Elgin, Illinois to talk about suffering. This recording is part two of that, Suffering from God, where we consider what it means to be a Christian and receive, and receive suffering from the hands of our Heavenly Father who loves us. Yeah, good question. So for Job, it's on earth. Uh, there was another question that was similar, and it was about the children that Job has. So let's, yeah, okay, so let's finish, let's finish the book of Job, and I'll make a couple of comments on that. And then we'll start the book of Psalms and see how far we get. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, so Job is going to be restored. If you look at the end of verse 10, so I'm in Job chapter 42, verse 10. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Uh, then all his brothers, all his sisters, all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep. Remember at the beginning he had how many? Seven, double. Six thousand camels. At the beginning, he had three. One thousand yoke of oxen, five. And one thousand female donkeys. Uh, so all of his animals, they're double. And he had seven sons and three daughters. Now, how, now okay. No, no, follow, track along with this. If the Lord was giving Job double, how many, what did he have when he started? Seven sons and seven sons and three daughters. And so you would expect this to say 14 sons and six daughters, but it doesn't. Now, uh, it was a, a great pastor friend of mine who showed me this and said, now, look, this is this is because uh, Job never lost his first 10 children. He still has them in the resurrection. And so Job does have twice as many children. Do you see that? Now, that is wonderful. That's a wonderful comfort, especially for any of you who have, who have had to bury children. Uh, this is an incredible comfort that you have not lost them. Okay? Uh, but that Job has now 20 children. He had 10, now he has 20. See, This is also bad news for those of you who want your animals to survive into the resurrection. <laughs> This is one of these questions I used to stumble as a pastor. You know, people say, I remember, uh, I remember someone called me up. It was like 11, 1230 at night. I answered the phone and someone was crying and they said, Pastor, I got a question for you. Will dogs be in heaven? <laughs> and at 1230 at night, when the person is crying on the other end of the phone, I th- the answer, I think, was yes. <laughs> but this is how now this is how I answer. Apparently, Luther talked about that. I, I've got to find the Luther quote. But this is how I answer the animal question now. I said, well, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't talk about the resurrection and animals will be in the resurrection for sure. We don't have any way of saying that there's a continuity between the animals that die and the animals that are in the resurrection. But I'm pretty sure that when I get to the resurrection, I don't want to have like 40,000 cows lined up there asking, well, how did I taste? <laughs> This huge flock of chickens being like, I hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> so my answer now is, will animals be in the resurrection? I, the same, I hope not. <laughs> <'Cause>... <laughs> That's right. 
we like that we want the animals that we name to be there, but not the animals that we eat. So that's our distinction. So anyway, uh, but this is so Job is restored. He's restored double. Now, the question is, do, should we have that same expectation of restoration? Uh, and the answer is no, God has not promised it. God has not promised that restoration to us. Uh, it could be that um, that the Lord hands our lives over to the devil. And in fact, that in the end, that's exactly what happens. And yet the whole point is that we, through this all, we're trusting in the Lord. So, um, uh, so, so remember, we have to sing this hymn. And every year this gets harder. It's coming up. We're gonna, you guys are going to have to sing it in a couple weeks. And we say, take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Let these all be gone. They yet have nothing won. Now, the kingdom ours remaineth. Now, I suppose, it's, in some ways, as you get older, it's easier to say, take they our life, isn't it? I mean, I, it seems easier to me to sing, take they our life. But now, uh, so that you, it seems like as we mature in Christ, it's, it's easier to let these things go. But then, you know, goods, fame, child and wife. It was easy to sing that when I was in college. Take, take my goods. You want that box of junk? You can have it, you know. <laughs> That's all. We don't have any goods. It's easy to sing that thing. But now the Lord gives you, it, it, you know, sometimes life gets more comfortable and that you have more goods around you. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I look around my, my study and I have all these books. I inherited a library. It's a beautiful library uh, from a pastor who died. And uh, I'm just surrounded by all these friends, you know, and books. And, oh, man, I don't want someone to take all that stuff. Uh, uh, good. So when you have it, and then when you also when you get married now, when you say take their uh, child and wife. Now, I, you didn't, that was easy to sing when I didn't have carrying the kids. And now you think about that, you know, if someone if someone comes in, you know, like the thug in Oregon and he says, if you're a Christian, stand up and I'm going to kill you. And, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, later. But uh, OK, I can do, I think I can handle that. But if someone says, hey, if you're a Christian, I'm going to kill your kids and your wife. Oh, boy, you know, that's it gets hard. That's a hard thing to sing. And yet, it's in some ways, we're training ourselves that this is now that it all belongs to the Lord. And if they take. Our, our children and our and our wife and, and our own life, these things, in fact, are not lost. Uh, because we belong to the Lord, uh, we, we have life that endures forever. Okay. Now, um, we had the point that if you look, if you're at the end of Job, so you might as well look at Psalm 1, and you see this con- the contrast between the heavenly council and the earthly council right there in the first verses of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins... It copies Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed, or if to sound it more holy, you say blessed. I'm not sure why blessed gets the extra accent on the ED. Have you sorted that out? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's because that's what we sing. I just say to the kids, have you cleaned your room yet? <laughs> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. So you have the contrast here 
between the between the counsel of the wicked and the counsel of the Lord. And it doesn't say he goes to church, but he says he meditates on the Lord's word. You have the Bible there. See, and the point is that this is the same. This is the same. You, it, when you read the scriptures and when you come to church, you're getting the same heavenly counsel brought down to you on the earth. Okay. Now, uh, so here's the picture. Any other questions? We keep rolling a little bit. You're in the midst of suffering. And you're right in the throes of this stuff. Uh, let me give myself a little room here. And, uh, and you realize that uh, here you are, and you're suffering, and, uh, and you, here's God, and here's the devil, and you guys are thinking, well, I'm suffering if that's how Pastor draws a picture of me. <laughs> I'm really kind of bad. And God and the devil, it seems like they're on the same team. In other words... Where did, where did Job get all this stuff? Well, it's from it's from the devil, and yet the, uh, the, it's from as far as Job knows, it's from God. They're the same. That they're they're, they're handing, God and the devil, in fact, agree on all this suffering for Job. When you're in the midst of suffering, it is nearly impossible to determine if that suffering is from God or the devil. In fact, it seems like it's from both, and that's probably right. But there is a distinction to be made. Both in the intent, in the in the in what motivates, and in the purpose. Okay. So what is what motivates God in everything that He does for us? Love. And what motivates the devil? Hate. Not not just for you, but also for your Jesus. And they have different purposes. Why does God hand us over to this? Uh, it's not to tempt us but to test us. And there's a, God tempts no one. Uh, the devil, though, in our suffering is tempting us while God is testing us. In other words, what, what does the devil want for, to come from our suffering? Yeah, sin, death. Despair. A loss of hope. He's assaulting our faith, our hope, and our love. What does God want to come from it? Through this, how does Peter say? Through the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than silver. So the Lord is testing us to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our hope, and to strengthen our love. To cast down pride. In fact, Luther, uh, Augustine lists two reasons God lets us suffer. Luther lists five, and we have that on the thing. And that's what the, the Lord's purpose is our good and the good of our neighbor. So we'll look, we'll look, we're going to look at that. But now, if it's true, all the markers are migrating to the table here. Let me. If this is true that we're in the midst of it, and it seems like God and the devil are on the same team, then what we want to do is we want to look at where, where was their suffering where God was working against the devil? And that is the suffering of the cross. Okay? It's the suffering of the cross that God is assaulting the devil and destroying the devil. Do you remember 1 John uh, chapter 3? For this reason the Son of God was manifest that he might 
that he might uh, destroy the works of the devil. Or Hebrews 2 is the best. Uh, just as the, uh, the sons and uh, just as we have flesh and blood, he partook of the same. That means Jesus had a body so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So that in the death of Jesus, the devil is being overthrown. OK, so we want to look at the death of Jesus. Now, maybe let's look at uh, uh, you're right there in the neighborhood. Let's go to Psalm 22 now. Um, Psalm 22, remember, probably is the clearest text in all of the Bible about the crucifixion. Uh, the second being Isaiah 53. Now, it's amazing that the two most clear descriptions of the crucifixion are in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. We know that this is a, a depiction of the crucifixion. I mean, we can see it in the text, but especially because this psalm is what Jesus prays on the cross. Now, remember that Jesus was crucified nine in the morning. His crucifixion was was six hours long from noon to three. There was darkness and Jesus speaks seven times, three of them at the very beginning, one kind of towards the end in the middle and then three at the end. OK, so there's seven words of Jesus. Uh, six of them, three are in John, three are in Luke. But Matthew and Mark have only one thing from Jesus. And it is Psalm 22, verse 1. It's the central word of Jesus on the cross. And it's probably some of the most important words uh, in the Scripture. Uh, remember that uh, uh, the darkness covers... This, the darkness is an indication that, that Jesus is bearing the sins of the world and that, uh, th- that all of creation and heaven itself is, is being... Um, is, is, is disgusted, basically, God is disgusted at Jesus. It's a picture that he's kind of turned his back on him, that he has, and the language of the scripture is that he's forsaken him. Now, uh, Pastor Bestial mentioned that when we think of the suffering of the cross, our mind is brought to two chief ways of suffering. That's on the list here. You see the threefold suffering of Jesus. We have the bodily suffering of Jesus. We have the shame of the cross. That is the suffering of his name. I think I'm on the back of page one. I'm not on. I'm not on the section two yet. Sorry. <laughs> we gotta. We just see how we're pacing ourselves here. But uh, you see the threefold suffering of Jesus' body, and so Pastor Bestial mentioned that the Hollywood suffering, where you have this kind of agonizing on the cross, and we say, well, was it the suffering of Jesus' body that in fact won forgiveness? No, because if that's the case, then the two men crucified next to Jesus would have won for us forgiveness, or we could crucify ourselves and win forgiveness. We can suffer like that. That's not in fact the suffering that wins his that wins our forgiveness. Now, there's the second kind of suffering that uh, uh, that the Gospels focus on. When you read the Gospels and you ask, how is Jesus suffering? They really focus on the attack on Jesus' name or his reputation, the emotional suffering. Now, this is indicated in, um, uh, for example, when, uh, when they slap Jesus and say, prophesy who struck you. When they put on the crown of thorns, now it would hurt to wear a crown of thorns, but it's more of a shameful sort of thing, you know. Here's the difference to get between the body and the name is, and I love to ask this question, and so I want to kind of see your answer. If you had two options, you just think of your enemy, your worst enemy, and they were going to stand before you, and they were going to either spit in your face or hit you in the face, which would you prefer? 
Now, who would prefer? <laughs> what is it? Who would prefer the stroke, the hit, the strike to be hit? Who would prefer to be spit? Now, look at it, 50-50, maybe less. Now, why? Now, if the spit does not hurt physically, I mean, unless they're like, I mean, a word, like county fair, watermelon seed kind of championship. Yeah, no, that's right. They got the disease. No, but why Why would you, why would, now, to be hit in the face, you know, it's going to break your nose. But why would you like that rather than being spit upon? Because when someone spits upon you, it's an assault on your on your name, it's an it shames you, right? Or what about this? If they were going to either strike you in the face or tear off all your clothes in public, who would rather be hit in the face? <laughs> all right, see. Now it does not hurt to be stripped in public, but why do we? Do we... <laughs> You're right. It might not hurt the person, but everyone around. <laughs> That reminds me, uh, <laughs> oh, maybe I shouldn't tell this story. I got to tell it now. I remember when I was a teenager, and yes, okay, and we were t- traveling around Australia, and, uh, and we were going to, we were in the sticks, we were just camping out in the sticks, and we were headed to the beach, and they told us like two days, three days before they got there, they said, the beach where we're going, it's a nude beach. And I thought to myself, whoa, that's going to, I mean, I was fairly excited about it. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, I, we got to the nude beach, and I thought, oh, this was a mistake. <laughs> There's all these, um, you know, generally, the people on the nude beach were like 85-year-old raisins. <laughs> I mean, they were 85 years old themselves. <laughs> and they, I mean, it's, so someone said, someone, I remember we were there, and someone says, uh, uh, nude beaches are like liberalism. It sounds good till you actually get there. <laughs> and you realize this was a mistake. Now, this, the, the, but nakedness is a thing in the scripture. Jesus was crucified. Now, at, at least mostly naked, perhaps completely naked. Now, some historians say that the, always crucifixion was naked. That was part of it. You're in the, your shame. Uh, some historians say that there might have been a concession in Israel that they would cover them a bit because of the Jewish modesty. So there's a there's a some sort of some people think that maybe, you know, we have Jesus always on the crucifix is wrapped in a cloth. And they say, well, maybe that's actually maybe how it was as a concession to the to the Jews. But we don't know. But still, you're stripped of all your they're gambling for Jesus, for his clothes, for his undergarments there, you know, for this thing. And uh and the, and the shame of the cross is really quite incredible. That, uh, it, it, Hebrews says that Jesus uh, um, scorned the cross. This, this, uh, Hebrews 12, remember, he despised the shame. He endured the cross despising the shame. Now, there's a real true suffering in the shame of the cross. But the, but the, but the suffering of the cross that, in fact, is the atoning suffering for us, like Pastor uh, Vestral said this morning, which is not something I noticed. I'm teaching First Peter now, but I did not notice this, that Peter talks not about the death of Jesus, but the suffering of Jesus for us. That's a phenomenal insight. Thank you. I mean, that's wonderful. That the suffering of Jesus for us is, is the suffering that Jesus receives from God. So Isaiah 53 says that he was smitten by God and afflicted. 
so that Jesus is receiving the suffering that we should receive for our sin. In other words, Jesus is suffering not just physically and emotionally, but he's suffering the very wrath of God on the cross. And that's seen in this prayer from Psalm 22, which Jesus prays. We have it, uh, uh, Matthew gives it to us in Hebrew. Mark gives it to us in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The cry of dereliction. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this forsakenness of God is because on Jesus is all of the sin of the world. Everything that we've ever done wrong. Everything right that we've failed to do. All of it. From the sin of Adam and Eve to the last sin that's committed before the last trumpet. And more than that, our, the, the, our, our, our sinful nature is piled on Jesus. Remember how it was in the Old Testament? They'd have the scapegoat and the priest would lay on hands. And this, all the sins would be piled on him. Well, that's what John the Baptist says of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that all the world's sin is put on Jesus. And now the Father says, all of my wrath and my anger over sin... Blammo! It's right on you, Jesus. And he's suffering that. This is, this is the eternal uh, suffering of God's wrath. Right, right at that moment. Uh, and, it's, and it's incredible because Jesus doesn't deserve it. In fact, you see in Psalm 22, uh, the, the, understand that Jesus, when he, we just have the single, but the whole prayer is a prayer of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear. In the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Now, now, hear this rightly, this next verse. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. If since He delights in Him. So that Jesus knows. Okay, here's what He knows. He knows that God is forsaking Him. He knows that He's crying out for help and He's not receiving help. He knows that He hasn't done anything wrong and He doesn't deserve it. He knows that in the past, sinners have cried out to God and he's delivered them. And that he's holy and God is not hearing his prayers. He's turned, God has turned his face on him. But here's what Jesus doesn't know. He doesn't know why. Now, uh, this is where... uh, I'm convinced of this, but I'll have... Pastors protest. So you have to ask Pastor Bestial if he wants to protest as well. But, uh, and it's, it's fine to do that. But, but I think it's very important that Jesus does not cry out, My God, my God, you have forsaken me. It's not a statement. It's a question. And I think it is a real question. My God, my God, why? Why? Jesus doesn't know. Now, Jesus knows why he has to suffer on the cross before the cross. In fact, he knows why he's suffering at the beginning of his suffering. He knows why he's suffering at the end of his suffering because he's able to say it's finished. But in this three hours of darkness where the wrath of God is pouring down on him 
every single ounce of comfort, any knowledge that Jesus had, which would afford him some relief, is taken away from him. You know, we talk about the humiliation of Jesus, which is that he does not at all times and in every way use his divine attributes, which are his by the communication of of the two natures. So that Jesus can, in his life, not know things, for example. That he does know according to his divine nature, but he just doesn't know it according to his person. Or that Jesus can suffer. He can be thirsty. He can be tired, etc. We see a little bit of this when Jesus is in the garden, which is the, until this point, the deepest point where his humiliation reaches. And remember in the garden he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus knows that it's not possible, that this is necessary. In fact, he said it to his disciples already. It's necessary that I go to Jerusalem. It's necessary that I suffer. It has to be this way. But that, that in, the, in the agony of the garden, that knowledge is taken away from him so that he says, hey, if we can do it another way, let's do it. Now, that's for our sake, because now we know that there is no other way. I mean, if there was another way, the father would have answered the prayer of the son and provided another way. But there's no other way than the death of Jesus. But now on the cross, his humiliation reaches such a profound depth that even the idea that, well, uh, I'm suffering the wrath of God, but I'll, I'll be alive in three days. Or I'm suffering the wrath of God, but at least it's, you know, for, to, to win for myself a people. And to, and to save the people that I love, all of that is taken away from Jesus. So that all he knows is that he's suffering, that he doesn't deserve it, and he doesn't know why. It's pure humanity. Yeah. That's how Luther describes it in his, in his commentary on Psalm 8, verse 5. Jesus suffers there as a mere man. Now, this doesn't mean, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you have uh, heard him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, etc. That's Psalm 8, verse 5. It's really quite beautiful. Now, this is not to say that at this point that Jesus' divinity and humanity are somehow divorced or torn apart or split from one another. No, that's not the case. His divinity and humanity are united at the incarnation, never to be torn apart. So that Jesus is God and man now just as much as he was uh, in his life. And he was God and man on the cross just as much as ever. But in the mystery of the two natures, he's able to to store away from himself any anything that would give him comfort so that he is it is pure suffering of God's wrath there on the cross. Now, now, look, if um, if there is trouble for us. That in the midst of our suffering we do not know why we are suffering, then we find comfort in this, that the same was true of Christ. That he also suffered and did not see the reason or he did not see the purpose. And yet through that, he trusted in God his Father. You see? And he did not sin. Now we cry out, why? Why? And when we pray that prayer, we're praying with Jesus. You see? Now, that is wonderful. Now, the other thing that's really quite wonderful is that when Jesus was praying, why? We know the answer. I mean, why was God forsaking Christ? To save us. To forgive our sins. To deliver us. In fact, Jesus was praying Psalm 22, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can praise Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we can have promises like, uh, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, uh, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see that? And while we can pray, why? Why am I suffering? We never pray, why are you forsaking me? Because he can't. He cannot. This suffering that Jesus was enduring on the cross was the suffering that you deserved, but he was taking it in your place. For the people of God, there is no forsakenness left to give. Like Pastor Bestial preached this morning, there is no wrath left. It's been poured out on Christ. So that while we might not know the purpose of our suffering, we do know why we're not suffering. We're not suffering because God is mad at us. We're not suffering God's wrath. We're not suffering because He's angry. That has been spent on Christ. And that's our comfort. You see, remember how we started? That God doesn't give us answers, but He gives us promises. And here it is. This is the promise. Christ has died for you. Christ has suffered for you. Christ has loved you. So while you might not know why you are suffering, you know why you're not suffering. You're not suffering God's anger. In fact, whatever you are suffering somehow comes from His love. Because that's all He has for you. And that's His promise, see, in the midst of it. Uh, so that Jesus is asking a real question here. And this is, our, this is really our chief, our chief comfort is in the death and suffering of Jesus. Does that make some sense? Or I shouldn't maybe say, does that make sense? I should say, does that deliver comfort? Because that's what it's supposed to do. All right. Now, if you'll, if you'll permit me, then let's keep moving. We'll go on to the next page now to, and transition a little bit. Um, well, let me pause there and then we'll see if there's any questions and then we'll move on to the next question, which is suffering and God. Now we'll say suffering from God and we'll take a look at how it is that Job and Christ and the saints can receive their their suffering from the Lord. And we'll talk about suffering and it's the role it plays in our Christian life. OK. Uh, but any questions on this, the problem of suffering? Yes, ma'am. I remember, uh, I have a, a, a dear friend, Pastor Jared Melius. The question was, if you didn't hear, why do some suffer more than others? And um, he and his wife, Jan, we were at the seminary together. When we were on vicarage, their son, Jonathan, was nine months old. And uh, and Jan had put him, uh, Jonathan, to rest on the bed and had put up a crib against the bed to hold him so he wouldn't fall off. And Jonathan rolled over and was pinned between the bed and the crib. And um, they found him dead. And, uh, and uh, this is an unbelievable sort of thing. You know, of all the ways to suffer, this is the worst, to suffer the loss of a child, especially a, a, a young child in a tragic death like that. And um, and it was a time of great grief, as it would be for anyone. And uh, and one of our seminary professors, the sainted Dr. Marquardt, um, 
wrote them a note. And my friend Pastor Melius still pulls it out every once in a while to look at it. And, it, and he talks about it a lot. And the note said something like this. Um, Our Heavenly Father uh, must love you dearly to entrust you with such suffering. Uh, I heard a similar sort of story just this week where someone was telling me that in their family that they had a year where they had death after death after death. It was like parents and parents and then a brother and this one. It was just one kind of tragedy after another. And the pastor came to them and said, "Uh, God surely must love you. Whew. Now, I'm not old enough to say that kind of stuff. (laughs) Old pastors say that kind of thing. Wise pastors. Pastors with courage. (laughs) But I think there's something there. Is that uh, when we receive this great suffering, we say, why do we have so much suffering? Well, it must be because the Lord loves me. Now, I suppose you you could look at that the other way around. And say, uh, why has the Lord protected me from such suffering? I mean, I stand here before you guys and talk about suffering. In my own life, I had just have not had that much suffering. Uh, you know, I mean, we all have some degree or another, but I haven't had any particularly profound losses. Uh, I suppose they'll come. And probably the more I talk about suffering at conferences, the more doomed I am to have something really bad happen. But uh, we could also say, well, the Lord has given me peace and rest, and that's also because he loves me. So why does the Lord hand us over to suffering? Because he loves us. And why does the Lord protect us from suffering? Because he loves us. <laughs> and that everywhere we look, as we, as we are Christians, we see everything in our lives as evidence of his love for us. I'm not sure if that gets to your question. Now, Augustine says, where does this? Oh, yeah, here. We'll skip down. If you look at the, uh, like, so part two, D, the reason or purpose of suffering. Augustine, in this is in the City of God, first book of the City of God. And Augustine, and Augustine in the City of God is arguing against the pagans who said, hey, uh, Rome has fallen because uh, there's Christians there and God is punishing them. And so the problem of suffering wasn't used as an argument against the Christians And Augustine basically says, only the pagans wonder about suffering. (laughs) Christians understand suffering. It happens for two reasons. Either God's punishing sin or he's strengthening faith. And both are good. If if, If God hands me over to punishment, it's teaching me to repent. God be praised. And if God's handing me over to suffering to strengthen my faith in him, then God be praised. And maybe sometimes he's doing both. (laughs) Teaching me repentance and faith. Uh, Augustine says, only the pagans have no room for suffering. Uh, and that, that is because they do not have a God who suffers. Now, that's pretty good. Luther says that that's five reasons. And really, this is kind of two reasons expanded. To punish faith. Or sorry. Wait, that's not what it should say. <laughs> to punish sin is what it should say. That's a pretty bad typo. <laughs> To punish sin, (laughs) to exercise faith, to attack our pride, to humble us, to cleanse or improve us, 
and to uh, show his glory. So those are the five reasons that. But really, it's those two things kind of combined. And really, and really, when you look at those two things, remember, uh, remember how we talk about repentance. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about repentance in the church. What is repentance? And most people will say repentance means to do a U-turn, to change direction, to, uh, to stop doing the sins you were doing and start doing the good works you weren't doing. Most people think of repentance as a matter of works. That's not repentance. Repentance has two parts, and they are contrition and faith. Uh, So contrition uh, is sorrow over our sin. So when the law is preached to us and we realize, oh boy, I'm a sinner. That's contrition. And then the second part of repentance is faith. And that's what happens when the gospel is preached to us. We believe the promises. So the Holy Spirit comes with the law and shows us our sin and we're contrite. The Holy Spirit comes with the gospel, shows us Christ and we believe. And this is, do you see in this the two reasons that Augustine has? Well, why does, why does God uh, uh, give uh, suffering? Well, to, to, to punish sin and to strengthen faith. See? In other words, the purpose of suffering is always repentance. <laughs> Remember how it happened that when Jesus, uh, Jesus gets this question, you know, Pilate had a massacre. He killed these guys. And then there was a tower. The Tower of Siloam fell on people. And the disciples come to you. We're like, why did this happen? Were the people greater sinners than the others? And Jesus says, no, no, they weren't greater sinners than anybody else. But unless you repent, the same thing is going to happen to you. Oh. oh. In other words, Jesus is saying every time we see a tragedy or suffering fall on someone else, it's a it's a preaching of repentance. When we see the hurricane, you know this happens. You know the hurricanes always come and they hit, uh, they hit like New Orleans, you know, and we think, well, it's because they probably deserved it down there, you know, New Orleans. They're going around doing their Mardi Gras. They're really wicked. They eat crawdads. <laughs> they deserve it, <laughs> right? Well, you better move out of Las Vegas or anywhere else, you know. I mean, why? you know, this is not how to think of this sort of thing. Jesus teaches us when we see the hurricane, you know, hit New Orleans or whatever, that we repent. That, that, and that when, we, when bad things happen to us, that we repent. This is always the purpose. Okay? All right. Let's dial back up. I want to fill out. Look, I made a chart for you guys. I want to I think about this a little bit with you. So that our life, that we live life towards God and towards our neighbor. And our life with God is, is first a receiving and then, uh, and then a reciprocating. There's a passive side of our life with God and an active side of our life, life with God. Now, the most important, and then the same thing is true of our neighbor. We, we are, there's an active side of our life with our neighbor and a passive way that we live with our neighbors. Okay? Now, the, with God, the most important part is what this is what being a Christian is. If you look at the God column and the passive row, and that is faith. 
that we receive from God those things that He wants to give to us. Faith is a passive thing. Purely passive, says Luther. That, we, that we're, we're, we're on the receptive end of the Lord's gifts. And this, our passive activity towards God, that's a weird way to say it, but our passive posture towards God is what makes us Christians. That's, that's what it is to be a Christian. My sheep hear my voice. Well, that's not doing anything. It's a, it's a receiving sort of thing. My dad and I were talking about this, kind of the difference between hearing and, and, and seeing the other day. And my dad pointed this out to me, that you can, you can turn off your eyes. You can never turn off your ears. I suppose if some of you have... You're like, oh yeah, Pastor, watch this. I'm not going to listen to a single word you say anymore. But there's a, but you can't. So you know, if you're asleep at night, you're blind basically. But if if the thunderstorm comes over and, or if your alarm goes off, your ears are still working even when you're sleeping, right? You can't shut them off. Uh, so I, that's why I. I teach my children the catechism when they're asleep. <laughs> Honor your father and your mother. <laughs> Dad, I had some really creepy dreams last night. <laughs> you can't turn your ears off there. So, but our ears are, are they're always on, but they're passive. Probably the most passive things that our eyes we open and close we point this direction or that direction our taste our smell even where our touch we're reaching out and touching things but our ears are just there and they're they're just waiting they're just holes in your head Uh, that's what my dad said i would always say too you need that like you need a hole in your head well there's something to that our ears are here and this is our now uh, uh and 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 this is what it means to be a christian is to listen is to hear my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So that it's, it's our life of hearing and believing God's word that makes us Christian. Faith. That's what faith is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It, it can't be any other way. And then we, in turn, live, uh, we live towards God in love. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear and love and trust in God above all things. What's the greatest commandment? shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this is our life of Christian love towards God, flowing out of faith. Now, there's a similar sort of thing towards our neighbor. We live an active life in service to our neighbor, and that also is love. Uh, The second one is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. So that our Christian life takes the shape of love. Yes, That's why Paul, love is the active for both God and neighbor. That's why Paul says this word is, uh, uh, the law is summed up in this word, one word, love. He who loves does no wrong. So if you took the Ten Commandments, you know, you take the Ten Commandments, you boil them down to two, love God and love neighbor. You boil it down to one and you have one word, love. Now, we think, by the way, love is the nicest of all words. If you were to say, what's the most beautiful word? What? I was, I was remembering the story you told last night about the Jamaican lady and the name she gave to her baby because she thought it was so beautiful. Uh, this is you, you think, well, what is the most beautiful word? But think of the meaning of the word. And we'd probably say up there amongst all the most beautiful words are is the word love. It's a lovely word. 
thank you. Uh, it's so, it, and, and, and it's, uh, you know, if you want to argue that something is good, then you talk about love. In fact, we have the argument now, uh, the, the word love is, is the word defending everything that's being argued about. In the church, there's an argument that there's no doctrine of hell. And you know how that's said? Love wins. Uh, we also see the argument for um, something like um, uh, uh, same-sex marriage. And that, how is that argued? Love. How can you legislate love? Right? Well, we got two answers to that. Uh, one is that uh, the ability to determine if what you love is good or bad is what makes us human beings. So that if I really love the taste of tires and I just walk around licking tires all the time, you guys got to say, hey, uh, Pastor, you love the wrong thing. <laughs> Don't lick tires. Now, that's we got to be able to say that. Hey, uh, if someone loves the wrong thing, we got to be able to say, hey, you love, you love the wrong thing. Uh, and, that's, and that's just a kind of a basic human thing. But when we consider it a little bit more profoundly, we realize that love is, in fact, a very, very deadly word. Because the law always accuses us, and this is the same thing for love. Love is never finished. Uh, so here's the example I like to use. If I make myself a list and it's, here's my chores, you know, I've got to take out the garbage and I've got to do the dishes and I've got to love my neighbors myself and I've got to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. And now I'm going to bed at night and I'm seeing how I did and I say, oh yeah, check, did the dishes, check, took out the trash, check, loved my neighbors myself, check, loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. It is a, you can never check that off. You can never do it. You can never finish love. This is the point. You can never finish loving. It requires everything. So that the Lord's command to love always kills us. It's law. It always shows us our sin. It always accuses us. I remember, now here's a story. We're goofing around Australia. And we're driving along. And I was in the back seat. I think I was asleep. And the gal that was driving hit the corrugated road and flipped. And we were in this little Jeep and we rolled over. We bounced over this termite bed. And I just remember kind of waking up and, and, and thinking, this is strange. We're kind of going sideways like this. And then all of a sudden, uh, and I can still see it. It's amazing. This was 20 years ago. The glass from the window goes like this. And then all of a sudden, it's just dirt. We'd rolled up and we were sliding on top. And, uh, and the roof came on my head. I had to get a couple of staples. And you no know, one was hurt really bad. The guy in the front seat uh, broke his, um, his wrist. And the gal that was driving had a, like a little hairline fracture on her vertebrae. And you think, she, uh, you, so you could say it like this. She broke her neck. <laughs> but really, she just had a little fracture. She had to wear a neck brace for a couple of weeks and she was fine. Uh, but I remember when we kind of came to a stop... There was a song playing. It was a Beatles song. And it, it was like this. Uh, All you need is love. <laughs> da, da, na, na, na. <laughs> and I remember thinking as I'm kind of hanging upside down in, the, in this crushed Jeep was, and an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
All you need is love and an ambulance. Uh, so we, so this is our Christian life. Our active life is of, it's of, it is of love. Uh, and yet we always remember that that's law. Okay. And that the, it's, it's only in the love of God that we find any hope for our lovelessness and failed love and incomplete love. But then we also have a passive side of uh, our Christian life in this world. And that is here defined as suffering. What does the Christian receive from the neighbor and from the world? And it's here, it's suffering. Luther said we should play a game with the children to teach them the scriptures. Okay? And we should have two pouches. Huh. And then in each pouch you have two other pouches. So you got a you got the doctrine of the scripture, and then you have the instruction of the scripture. Uh, living, life, doctrine and life. You have verses that have to do with doctrine and in life. And in the doctrine side, you're going to have two types of verses. The verses that teach you that you're a sinner and the verses that teach you that Christ forgives sin. And then in the life side of the scripture, you're going to have those verses that command love. And then you're going to have the verses that talk about suffering. Can you believe that? In other words, if you want to know what four things are in the Bible, you have the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of grace. You have our life of love and our life of suffering. Now, when we normally think about what it means to live the Christian life, we normally think about this. But every time the scripture talks about living the Christian life, it talks about this suffering. Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his lazy boy and remote control and follow me. (laughs) Or something opposite of that. Let him take up his cross. All, the, all who desire to live God's life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Uh, in this, uh, Pastor Bessel's sermon, the one time that Jesus is preached to us as an example. Do you remember the what would Jesus do thing? This is like 20 years ago, and everyone has the what would Jesus do? It's like, what did you have the Jack Daniels thing on your wrist for? What is that? <laughs> and so what would Jesus do? And always the question is, well, now how do I, that means what do I, how do I live? But the only, how do I talk to people? How do I, you know, what am I supposed to do? But, but the only time the Bible talks about Jesus as our example is that in, is in that verse in 1 Peter, where he says, He also left us an example in that he suffered without opening his mouth. So the answer, it's a good question, what would Jesus do? And the answer is, he would suffer. So I want to live a Christian life, what would Jesus do? He would suffer. And you say, well, what else would he do? <laughs> Is there any other options? He'd also die. Uh, what else? Uh, yeah, give himself on. Oh, yeah, raise himself from the dead. He'd walk on water. Want to try that? He would suffer. That's how he's our example in suffering. And how does he suffer? With patience. So the Bible is always connecting our Christian life to our suffering. Uh, 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 so, so that now... So, so that we know we're going to suffer. It's not a surprise. It's going to come. It's, it, it will happen. It's happening now. It's going to happen tomorrow. Until Christ returns. Our lives are marked with suffering. There's this great... When Jesus... Did I put this verse here? Mm. Mm. 
Hmm. Oh, oh, yeah, it's in the next section. So I got there's a, when, when Jesus says, how are things going to be between now and the second coming? And he says, nation will be against nation against fighting against nation and nation will fight against the church and the church will preach the gospel to the nations. Words, this is how it's going to be. There will be suffering. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just look at some of these Bible verses. This is in a very important text. Oh, it, are we, are we, oh. OK, we'll look at this text just for a little bit. Because then it's time for a break already. You guys are. Consider Hebrews writes. Consider him. Do you see where I am? Okay. So I'm on page three. Suffering from God, our Christian life of suffering. Right underneath that chart, there was Job chapter two. And then under there is C, Hebrews 12, 3 to 11. It says this. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Although it seems like in Hebrews that's about to happen. And that's an important thing for us to remember in the church. We could have said that, we could have said that until about a month ago. You Christians in America have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. But when those, those Christians stood up in Oregon in the classroom and said, I'm a Christian, and had a bullet put through their head, now we are suffering even to the point of blood. Okay? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. So this is back to the question, why does some suffer? Because God loves us. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, an earth, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Otherwise, it wouldn't be discipline. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So holiness and righteousness. This is the Lord's goal in this. Got it? It seems like there's a lot more passages. I can't believe we're at the end of the session already. We just barely got started. Uh, suffering and sanctification. Take up your cross. What makes a theologian? <clears throat> yeah, let's come back and we'll talk. We'll touch on the. Uh, we'll take a little break now. We'll come back and talk about Luther's What Makes the Theologian. We'll roll through a couple of these verses, and then we'll take a look at the last session. So suffering from God, and then we'll talk about suffering for God, which is the persecution of the church. And what does it mean to be living in a time where there's persecution? Uh, what are the two borders of persecution on the church, the two bloody borders of the church? And how do we endure such things? And how do we prepare for the persecution that's coming? Sound good? Mike, just for a second here. And, and